How do we define success? At what point does an entrepreneur consider her or himself successful? Aisha Pandor is the CEO and co-founder of the groundbreaking home services app SweepSouth. Aisha has started an on-demand home services application which is taking South Africa by storm. It has resulted in Aisha being considered one of the key figureheads of the bright new crop of CEOs in the country. This is The Healthy Business Show. I'm your host, Fred Rode. And in this episode, I want to ask Aisha about shifting careers, leaving a stable job for the wide open seas of entrepreneurship, the experiences starting and scaling a company, the lessons she learned going through an international accelerator program, and finally, what does it mean to be successful? Aisha Pando, it's so good to see you again. Thanks, Fred. It's good to be here. And you're a, a new mom as well, yeah. so you're you're throwing a lot of balls up in the air, yeah. uh, and uh, and obviously balancing your life and uh, and and quite a successful career and so on. How's that going? I'm trying to. I mean, I, I think the notion of balance is is a fallacy. I think I figured that out quite early in the game. So um, I think just trying to do the best that I can. I fortunately like being busy. You know, I'd wouldn't know what to do if I was on maternity leave for four months. So it's been two months in after having my son. Yeah, and I'm enjoying being busy, but also taking some moments out to to kind of enjoy the process of being a, a new mom again. Is it true that an entrepreneur never stops working? I mean, even when you got a bubble in your hands and you, in your head, you kind of still thinking about what could we do better and how can we Yeah it is your brain never stops working I mean um I yeah I took my son for his uh 6 week checkup recently and the pediatrician who delivered him she said you have to be back at work because when I came a few days after he'd been born you were sitting on the hospital bed with your laptop open so I know you didn't take time off and I was just like yeah It no. sounds about like every entrepreneur ever yeah. right Yeah Aisha you have your PhD in genetics. Essentially, you're a lot smarter than me. And um, I just want to know, how is it that you went from there, ostensibly in a lab, to now being the CEO and co-founder of one of the best-known startups in the country? That's quite a big leap to the left. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm definitely going against the fashion at the moment when it comes to entrepreneurs by having a PhD. I think it's more fashionable now to be a dropout and not to actually complete whatever you're studying. So, but I was studying uh, genetics at university. I still absolutely love the field. I went into it because I like the idea of understanding what makes human beings what we are and who we are. And then when things go wrong, what what's the cause behind those things? And then how do we fix it? So, you know, I, I think like thinking back on it now is kind of like a, an entrepreneurial scientist, you know, like still thinking about opportunities, challenges, how to fix problems. But I just felt that the timeframes to developing things that are applicable in gene therapy and in genetics are just way too long. It takes something like 20, 30 years to go from discovery to something that's, you know, a publicly available therapy in that space. And so it was just too long. I'm way too impatient. Sure. Um, And the other thing was also thinking about what South Africa's challenges are and thinking I'm a young black woman. I'm capable. I'm well-educated. I have potential. Is working in a lab on gene therapy that affects, you know, a couple of thousand people, is that the best way to be applying what I'm doing? Um, And so I kind of switched and thought about business and thought about building an enterprise and, and helping to address unemployment. Um, and so that's kind of where I made the switch. 
And in a parallel world, would you go to Silicon Valley and start something like to do with gene editing and CRISPR, potentially roping Elizabeth Holmes? As a, <laughs> no, as I would a, definitely not rope Elizabeth. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean maybe. You know, it's it's such an exciting field, and you know, I think is kind of the next big thing—the idea of like the interface between technology and and biology, and and how we can use that to to make ourselves better and to try and eradicate some of the the worst diseases that affect us, and. And, and so, yeah, in a in a parallel world or maybe in a world 20, 30 years from now, uh, definitely. Sure. There's a lot of exciting stuff, I suppose, in the biotech space. So yeah. I was in uh, in Silicon Valley last year and I spent a good couple of weeks there with yeah. a bunch of guys and everybody just spoke about CRISPR. That was yeah. the, the the most dropped word yeah. in, uh, in <laughs> well, I think like, I mean, like with the tech space, kind of tech proper and tech startups, you have these like, you know, big buzzwords and, and CRISPR is the buzzword at the moment. Sure. So when I was studying, we had something called zinc finger nucleases, which were like similar to CRISPR. They're kind of scissors that can snip out pieces of DNA that can be replaced. Amazing. And CRISPR is kind of the, the slick, newer, older cousin to these nucleases. Just a so, fancy yeah, so it's, way it's, of saying it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so there's always going to be something that's kind of the buzzword. And, and that was actually something that was very interesting in a, in a positive and, and, and slightly negative way in experiencing what the valley's like and, and what found are like and what the yeah, scene you is spent like. some time there, right? So at we, 500 startups. Yeah, so we were part of 500 startups, which is um, one of the, the the really well-known accelerator programs. Um, and we spent four months there, and it was, I mean, very cool to kind of feel like you're at the epicenter of what the next big things are going to be internationally. Um, I think Paul Graham from Y Combinator, he did a speech in 2012, and he, you know, he was sitting with this room of, of engineers, and he said, this is where the next big things internationally are developed. You guys are sure. essentially building the future for the rest of the world. And I did kind of feel like that, but the flip side to it was, you know, this, this very kind of trend-oriented mindset and, you know, kind of jumping onto what the new thing is and then that very quickly gets replaced by whatever the next new thing is. Sure. There's a sense of hyper growth yeah. there, right? Yeah. So success is not, it's it's almost exclusive to the companies that are achieving that hockey stick growth. Absolutely. Yeah. And you can very quickly fall off. If you're not building one of those things, you kind of fall off and you're chasing what the next thing is. So that's very interesting. I think then in terms of perspective, when you look at Silicon Valley and here, and we always compare ourselves, I think everybody always compares themselves, yeah. whatever hotspot we'll have in the world, will compare themselves to Silicon Valley. Yeah. It's almost like a negative and a positive, right? So here we have a maybe, is it, would it be accurate to say we have a, a slightly more longer term and more focused on fundamentals yeah. sort of mindset? Than than there would be in this kind of spray and pray attitude in Silicon Valley. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think when the notion of tech startups started to be developed in South Africa, so this is like ten years ago, and we had you know Silicon Cape emerging, for example. I think it was cool at that stage to to build companies in exactly the same way as Silicon Valley was doing it. So it was kind of like we jumped ahead and then tried to mimic exactly where they were 30 years down the line. And so you had people who were building like the delivery app for coffee or whatever it is, you know. No no <laughs> revenue, massive evaluation. Exactly, exactly. And, and you know, and um, you know, I'm going to raise this many rounds and, you know, the, the funding was celebrated more than the actual growth of the company and the fundamentals of the company. But I think we've kind of dialed back a bit. And I think to your point, 
point, we, we are starting to focus a lot more on fundamentals and also on unique challenges that we have here. So, um, you know, I think this ESCOM push app is a great example uh, where we look at the challenges that we have that are unique and we try and build solutions that are appropriate. And that's a great example. It's we're building stuff for purpose. Yeah. And that I suppose to segue into what you've done, and I think it's a great story. I mean, it's an amazing way that you saw a very specific challenge and uh, and you met that challenge with a very specific solution so first of all i mean just just very, maybe very briefly can you speak to the origin story how did it come about and then and then also potentially where are you taking sweep south what is the kind of trajectory that you're looking at uh, for the company yeah, Sweep South was formed four and a half years ago. My co-founder is my husband as well. The whole nother podcast That's a whole series, podcast yeah, right he's just there, on right? its own, yeah. <laughs> um, and we were both working in the corporate space um, at the time. I'd post finishing my PhD had gone into um, the corporate space working as a management consultant, and we both felt very unfulfilled. I think, you know, we felt like business itself was the place to be, but we wanted to have more control over our day-to-day and what we were doing than we felt we could have being employees. And I think we also wanted to build something. We wanted to do something that was impactful. And even if, you know, we crashed and burned at the end of it, we wanted to just say, you know, we, we did something that felt really big and felt like it had the potential to be impactful. And so we resigned from our jobs at roughly the same time suddenly just had zero income as a family and we started trying to work on ideas and we liked the 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 notion of working on platform businesses you know we liked the idea of sharing economy we thought it had something there when it comes to um, you know South Africa and the way a lot of businesses or industries should work in South Africa and sitting at home we our helper who was with us at the time basically told us that she was going to be leaving in in a week's time and that we had to try and find a replacement temporarily. And we went about trying to find someone and went through a really long and annoying and involved process, you know, trying to get referrals, going on to classifieds, newspaper classifieds, online classifieds, trying to find people. And there were a couple of issues um, that we faced. We didn't know how we could verify people. Uh, we'd have, you know, dodgy references. You pick up the phone, you don't know if the person you speak to is who they say they are. And so we thought it would be great to actually build something that would make our experience easier as people who are looking for someone to, to help them with home cleaning. But also through our search and through our conversations and interviews with people, we figured out that there are actually a lot of domestic workers in South Africa who are unemployed or underemployed. And then it kind of evolved into using technology as a way not just to fix the consumer issue, but actually to impact a whole industry, which we later figured out involves a million people, over a million people, and to help people within that industry find work opportunities and do it at rates that are a lot more decent than what people were being paid. So this is not a small vision, basically, is what you're trying to say. No, and I think, you know, you've got to have a big vision. You know, I think if you career people as we were, we had a great trajectory, both well-educated, to leave all of that and to focus on something else and something that has so much risk. It's got to be something big. You know, it's got to be something worthwhile. Starting a business is a massive step. And obviously, it's quite a scary step. And you, you're now... A few years into yeah. this journey and, uh, and I, I guess we're talking about success and attaining success and I would like to, you know, look at it particularly with a South African context rather than yeah. an international context. Yeah. But, but how are you measuring success in terms of your own trajectory and your own journey along the way? Yeah. 
So I think it's a goalpost that shifts, and I think that's okay. You know, I think even today, if you'd asked us when we started Sweep South where we thought it would land up, you know, you obviously develop projections that you give to to VCs, but a lot of the time that's, you know, it's specifically to get funding and not necessarily, you know, that you can envision your company getting to that point. For sure. In the beginning, you you have an idea of, of what success means to you. And for us, it was, again, about impact. It was about uh, legacy and, you know, and doing something that would have a positive impact on an industry as a whole. And then as you get into kind of the nitty gritty of the business and you understand how it works and as it evolves, then I think you constantly redefine what success means for you. And so, you know, for us in the early stages, it was having a hundred bookings a month and then it was a thousand and then it was 10,000, um, you know, and then it's a hundred thousand and then it's being able to operate outside of the country. And there are different types of entrepreneurs and some people start off with that like huge vision and, and that's it. But for us, it was kind of iterative and, and it was knowing what our goals were and, and having goals that were attainable enough, you know, so it's a, six month or 12 month goal and then reaching that and then reevaluating where we wanted to go next. Sure. I mean, this is a leading question, but Aisha, has it been a smooth ride <laughs> along the way? Uh, is it ever? I'm is it ever? Not. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Um, no, it, it Can you speak is. to maybe some of the challenges that you've yeah, experienced? Yeah, you know, um, I mean, I think just jumping into entrepreneurship in the first place is a big step. You know, there's risk, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't take risk in the way that people think they do. Like, mm. I think entrepreneurs often take calculated risks. You believe in yourself, you believe in the vision, and, and you don't kind of just throw caution to the wind and jump into something that seems crazy. But even then, you know, you're, you're making a big decision to, to completely change career. In many cases, like we did, you're putting up a lot of your material possessions up. And so we, you know, sold our house, all of the possessions that we had inside our house. We cashed in our pension. I was 28 at the time. Now that I think about it, like to cash in your pension is a little bit crazy. Mm. You know, it's your, it's your insurance for when you're older and you, mm. you know, you're essentially cashing it in and, um, you know, and getting rid of that. Um, and then, and then there are challenges around starting something that's completely new and that is very different to the current way of doing things and, and the question of whether that will work. So when we started Sweep South, there wasn't a notion of I will go online and I will book a service. And there were questions that customers or potential customers had, you know, is someone actually going to show up? How do I trust this platform? And so there was a lot of work that had to go behind just getting people to believe that we were legitimate and we weren't, you know, a fly by night. There were a lot of, I remember in the early days seeing a lot of questions on social media, like, is this a scam? Um, you know, and you're like, no, we really exist. We're not a scam. I promise you. <laughs> yeah. And then as you build, there are also risks and you have to, you know, as someone who's doing this for the first time, I had to learn a lot about managing a company, about financially managing a company, about managing people. As a management consultant, I managed myself. Working in a lab, I'd managed myself. And as the company grows, you have to learn how to work with people and understand people and be empathetic towards people. And it's not just about pushing yourself to build something. It's trying to lead other people to sign on to your vision and to, to be as excited about building that thing as you are. Speaking to the aspect of risk, I think it's quite a famous quote. Reed Hoffman talks yeah. about, you know, yeah. jumping over a cliff and building a parachute yeah. on the way down. I mean, that's effectively the type of appetite yeah. for risk that you, you have to have yeah. in order to be an, an entrepreneur. Yeah. So yeah. you kind of almost prepare to paint yourself in a corner yeah. and somehow figure your way yeah. out. Right? No, 100%. And it feels like as you're falling, 
the pieces that you need to build the airplane, you don't have them. Yeah. <laughs> and they kind of materialize along the way. Yeah. And you've got to figure out how to put them together, you know, so it's not like you have everything and you fall with it and it's just the assembly. It's also, you know, you don't even necessarily know what's going to come next and it comes and you've got to try and fit it in in the right way. So it's it's an incredibly hmm. scary journey at times. And yeah. a creative journey. I think entrepreneurs are the most creative people in the world, you know, and, and sometimes they don't believe that or yeah. understand that. But you're creating something out of nothing yeah. and you, you're yeah. effectively like in your case. I suppose you're, you're teaching people to want something that they didn't know they wanted in yeah. the first place. So yeah. they, the need they didn't even realize was there yeah. and you, you're explaining this whole process to them as well as then obviously winning them over and delivering the service. Yeah. So it's, it's obviously quite, quite difficult. Looking now at the next phase, if this trajectory continues as, as we hope it will, I suppose the, the next obvious step is going to be, you know, moving internationally. First of all, you know, how is that approach going? And yeah. secondly, do you think that South Africans at large, in terms mm. of the ecosystem that we have here, yeah. have that type of yeah. mentality? Um, and if not, why not? And what can we do to resolve that? Yeah. I mean, the way that we've thought about it is that inevitably the business will need to be international. I think if, if you're trying to build it at the scale that we want to, it will have to be international. But I think there are a lot of things that we want to do locally first. I mean, the one is that I think there's tremendous opportunity for scale still here. Mm. You know, we're doing something like 50,000 bookings a month. They are millions of households where we feel like um, Sweep South would be a great solution. And so um, there's a lot of scope just for core business to grow. And how, just sorry, to jump in, how yeah. are you creating that demand? Is it primarily word of mouth or I mean, how are you actually achieving that success and, and, and moving forward? It is primarily still word of mouth. So, you know, funny enough, um, as much as we um, invest in marketing, word of mouth is still the biggest driver of our new business. And I think that's important. You know, the, the flip side of that is that the only way that you can continue to grow is by continuing to do a good job to your customers. And I think ultimately for us, that's how we define success is do our customers absolutely love our product? Are they, you know, evangelists when they come to speaking about it to their friends and family as long as that's the case then we'll continue to be successful so that's the one thing is is um that you know word of mouth has just been a, a huge driver but i think yeah in terms of growth outside of that there's an ecosystem that you've got to build in this industry outside of just the core business that we do, you know, the, the connecting the two sides together. You connect a domestic worker with a customer and luckily now a lot of domestic workers in South Africa have phones. That wasn't the case four and a half years ago. We had to sponsor phones and then you figure out the transport's an issue, you know, and then you've got to try and help solve the transport issue. And then, uh, you know, a lot of people have dependents and you figure out that people have incorrect bank accounts and they don't have, uh, you know, insurance policies and they're worried about what happens to their families if something happens to them and then you've got to try and fix that and so I think the interesting thing about scaling a business and doing business in South Africa is that you have to be creative exactly as you've said but it's sometimes creative outside of what you initially thought the business would be because you see these opportunities that either are an opportunity that you just have to go after or are something that you have to fix before you can grow to the next level. And the negative side of that is, is, is obviously that, you know, you've got to fix things that are broken before you can grow big. Uh, the positive side is that as you grow your business, you unearth all of these amazing opportunities that mean that you don't necessarily need to leave the country to get to, uh, you know, billion rand, billion dollar 
type, you know, scale. I think a lot of entrepreneurs do think outside of South Africa. I think they do think about particularly consumer facing businesses. They do think about, you know, how big is the market? We love throwing out this stat that, you know, only five million South Africans pay tax. And so, you know, how big is the middle class? How big is your, your buyer base going to be? Sure. But I'm completely convinced that there are many, many opportunities in the country that we can take advantage of as, as entrepreneurs and, and take advantage of in a way that's win-win. Sure. I agree with you. I agree with you 100%. There's such a latent potential, even in the, the outlying areas outside of the city, yeah. the central CBDs of yeah. the, the primary centers yeah. Yeah. That, uh, that just remain untouched. And, and uh, there's huge potential there. Absolutely. If we look at a, other sort of platform products and, yeah. and companies, you know, a great example is Uber. Yeah. You know, the growth of Uber has been outstanding. It's almost yeah. been unprecedented in modern times. Yeah. And you see a company like that grow where there was nothing and uh, all of a sudden it's just pervasive, right? Yeah. It's everywhere and it's become this generic term. Yeah. You know, they have this famed approach to transplanting the system from one center to the next, to the next, to the next, and they grow so rapidly it's yeah. almost frightening. But the the reality is it's very rare, right? Yeah. It's very unusual that that happens. And, you know, the, they've built the back of their success primarily on demand. The fact that people are like, when's Uber coming to yeah. my city? Yeah. It's obviously a lot more challenging for yeah. many of the companies such as yours. And yeah. there's, there's, a, there's quite a few that are starting to bubble up now yeah. that are, are offering these amazing services that are on demand and that are completely necessary in yeah. today's economy. Yeah. How do you face that challenge? And, and what advice do you have uh, for others trying to do a similar thing? I think a lot of entrepreneurs know this. I think a lot of people who aren't in the entrepreneurial journey don't know this, is that the notion of this explosion and the kind of overnight success is completely false. You know, like Uber started in 2009. Their growth trajectory has been amazing. But they started really small. I was in San Francisco in 2012 and had never heard of Uber. I'd actually taken a Lyft ride before I took an Uber ride. So Lyft um, is an LYFT, exactly. Really? So no Uber's ways. competitor, yeah. Yes. So we, and this was when they still had the big pink mustache on the on the front of the car, and that's how you could identify them as a as a Lyft car. And this was, you know, three years after Uber had launched. And I think at the time Uber was still known as a uh, kind limousine. of black cab limousine type service. So you know, I think the biggest thing, and I think you know that people often get wrong is you look at the end story and the outcome and then the outcome is what you aspire to but it's your day one so you know as an entrepreneur I'm very conscious of the fact that you know we're four and a half years down the line we've still got a long way to go and your micro view is not necessarily the, the exponential view. So for us, it's how do we keep on trying to grow at 20, 30 percent month on month? And then you look back in a year and you go, OK, wow, you know, we've three, four, five X the size of the company. Well, you over continue that time. at 30 percent yeah. a month. You're going to be you're going to be smiling. Exactly. But it doesn't necessarily feel every month as, like, you know, yeah. like it's been explosive. And so I, you know, I, I, I think that's the way that you've, you've got to think about it. But also, you know, Uber's got an amazing kind of marketing uh, strategy and they've done very well. And I think kind of, you know, anticipating demand and going into countries when there is already demand and when it's a lot more of a pull than it is a push is a, is a very clever strategy. And, and, you know, there are companies that have done similar, you know, in the, in the on-demand space. Sure. And it's, I suppose that's the big challenge for local entrepreneurs who do want to go global and, and take that success that they operate here, you know, externally 
it's about trying to create that push pull you know not just pushing onto people to to figure out where the demand sits organically right? yeah which i think you can only do if you have the sort of value to people that uber delivers to its customers and that speaks to i think a really valuable lesson in what i'm hearing you say is we're trying to explore what success looks like and it's clearly a longer journey than i think a lot of entrepreneurs yes, yeah. would like yeah but the reality is you can celebrate small successes along the way yeah. i think your your analogy or at least your identification of uber you know it's it has been a journey from yeah. trying to whittle away the problem at a small base, I guess it's similar to what you're doing, right? Yeah. You're trying yeah. to figure out how to really crack the problem in the yeah. best possible way and provide yeah. the best possible solution yeah. in a smaller Petri dish before you start kicking down doors internationally. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, that continues, right? Uber's still refining their model. They're still coming out with new products for riders, new products for drivers. You know, they're still looking at how they're going to ultimately become a profitable company. So, yeah, there's a lot that goes with with it you don't you know success isn't a destination uh, you don't get to a point and you go okay cool I'm successful mm. you know let me chill it's celebrating the small milestones the milestones along the way 100%. Yeah, and I think about my own business career it's just having the perspective to celebrate those small little steps along the way yeah. and really celebrate them to, to identify that you've cracked a specific problem that you're trying to solve you may yeah. not have achieved the big vision yeah. yet but it's important to identify those small steps along the way. So I think that's that's massively important. And in terms of your big vision, what does that look like? Are you are you at liberty to share? No, what yeah, the- sure. I mean, we've always been very open about what Sweep South is. I think it started because of a very specific need that revolved around you know home cleaning. But the vision for us is to have a home management company where different elements of your home, whether it's a service, it's home products. Um, or even home information, uh, those things are all managed through technology. And so, you know, our kind of vision and the way that we, we visualize it is that, you know, you wake up in the morning and you realize that you're out of milk and you didn't get it last night. And then you go and you open your fridge and you realize that your sweep star who came to clean the house yesterday, when she opened your fridge, realized the same thing and used the same app to order milk for you so that you wouldn't have this issue in the morning and you can make your coffee without any worries. Um, and so it's, you know, using the fact that it's a tech platform to try and deliver a whole lot of services, use the people who deliver those services to then help you get the right products for your home when you need them. And it's using the data that we generate to just make this amazing kind of home experience. I think we're moving towards a, a world where time has become so scarce and people are busy and we, you know, we value time because we have so little of it. And uh, there are many things in your home and around taking care of your home that I think can be better handled by people whose role it is to do that. And and so, yeah, you know, our vision really revolves around te- using technology and allowing technology to take care of everything that's not absolutely kind of critical in terms of you needing to make those decisions and do those things. Can we talk a little bit about then the financing of that vision? Because obviously this kind of stuff takes money. I mean, yeah. okay, we're not Uber, but yeah. I mean, Uber, as you mentioned, still not profitable, yeah. which is quite yeah. insane yeah. considering its evaluation. But yeah. in terms of convincing investors mm. to stay the course, because that's a beautiful vision. I yeah. mean, it really does sound compelling. 
How how do you go about that process? And can you talk a little bit about the financing and potentially also segue a bit into the equity and and how do you make those decisions? What, yeah. You know, it's obviously quite a challenging thing, right? Yeah. yeah. No, very much so. I think a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, struggle with that because you want to keep as much of your company as you can. And, and you know, a lot of VCs, it feels like, are incentivized to do the, the exact opposite. <laughs> they take yeah, as the, much of your company as they the can. The dragons. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so, yeah, you know, I think we were fortunate in the in the very early stages of funding in that we we went to a pitching competition with the idea of trying to get a couple of customers from the audience. We ended up walking away with uh, an investor. So the judges, uh, Vinnie Lingham and Luke Larson, um, ended up investing in our business and also very fortunate that they had started tech companies themselves. In the early days, your valuation of the company and, and, and what you kind of see it as being is often very far removed from what an early sure. stage investor will value that. You, you're kind of thinking the big vision. Um, it's very early days and, and often, you know, you've just, you know, in our case, we just built an, an MVP and, you know, and had a couple of customers. And so I think any advice I'd give, I suppose, would be to at the very early stages, focus more on the type of investor that you bring on board than uh, the valuation that you'll get for your business. Um, I remember throwing out some number to Vinny. I think I said, you know, we need to raise 3 million rand. And he said, no, your business is valued at 3 million rand. You do <laughs> not need to raise 3 million rand at this how, point. How awkward. How awkward. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it was just a lesson about, you know, you put everything into it and you kind of, you, you get so emotionally tied to the idea of the value behind the business, which, which is not necessarily good in the early stages. And then as we grew, our ability to raise funding became very much about traction and the promises that you make to yourself. And you've got to put yourself out there and commit to, you know, getting to a certain stage of growth, a certain stage of revenue, employee number, um, and then being able to deliver on that. And so I also say take advantage in the early stages where it's all about potential and try and raise as much as you reasonably can without giving away too much of your business because then you've got to deliver results. Sure. Um, so you're backing yourself into a corner again. Exactly. It's, it's kind of make you're forcing yourself. Yeah, to and you know you want to you you have this tension between having a big vision and wanting to convince investors of a big vision, but then also you know again you've got to deliver on that. And if you don't deliver on that, then that's proof, quote unquote, that you haven't actually been able to execute on what sure. you said you will. And I guess you need enough runway as well, right? Because that's that seems to big be big problem with with yeah. Challenge. I mean with with everyone who I speak to in the space, I think underestimating how long it actually takes to 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 find and close with a good investor. And so yeah, you've got to make sure that you've got enough runway to allow that whole process to unfold. And how have you found the environment in terms of not just yourself but also speaking to your peers in the industry and so on in, in the in the ecosystem, put it that way, the entrepreneur ecosystem. In terms of you know, finding finance at the right rate and I suppose the ecosystem in general for, from a funding perspective. I think it's matured a lot, uh, firstly, in the, you know, in the last five years or so. Um, I think there are a lot of people who, who have, uh, money who are interested in the space. I think, you know, for a lot of reasons locally, I think it's, it's become quite an attractive space to be in. I think there are things like the section 12J, uh, you know, companies that have also helped. So there are a lot of people putting money into the space, there's definitely a lot of money to go around, particularly for relatively early stage companies. I think it becomes more difficult because of, you know, the things that I talked about, the fact that, you know, there's a lot of pressure to deliver once you get past the early stages. Sure. And so I think it gets a lot more difficult to raise 
further down the line. I think there are very few actual VCs who I would say are serious and who my peers would say are, are serious VCs and are actually interested in putting decent money behind a good company at a decent valuation. And so it, it gets difficult. And it's not just South Africa. The, the Series oh, yeah. A crunch is a you know, It's a business, I guess, thing. in itself. So the whole funding... Yeah. Funding industry is is a business in of itself, so they want to get the best deals that Absolutely. they can at the most amount of return for yeah. their their fellow, fellow investors. Yeah, yeah. I think just a question on that then, in terms of the early stages, you've got this choice, right? And I suppose the route that you took yeah. is to create the MVP and get funding for that, and you're on your way, right? Yeah. And there's yeah. associated pressure with that, yeah. but then also there is that land grab aspect of yeah. it that you can suddenly stake your claim, be Absolutely. first to market yeah. and really kind of, you know, move into the yeah. public eye. But then, you yeah. know, the alternative to that yeah. and what, a, what I suppose some would advocate is to yeah. fatten the calf yep. as, for as long as you yeah. can and get to the point where you're making revenue and, and then you're in a much stronger position yeah. to bargain, yeah. right? Yeah, it's so dependent on, you know, what it is that you're trying to build, the type, of business, the type sure. of business, the entrepreneur as well. Not everyone is good at the sort of, you know, stakeholder management that's required and the selling that's required to get an investment. Um, and not everyone should necessarily be. So it really does depend. I think there was a study recently that was published where they looked at externally versus internally funded businesses. And the outcome of that was that it takes seven or eight years longer to get to the same stage if you don't seek outside funding for a business. So, you know, if you are really looking to try and stake that claim to get that rocket fuel into the business, outside investment does seem to be the best way to do it. But but you're right, it's not for everyone. It's something that you need to be careful going into. It brings a whole lot of complications into the business. You're bringing additional stakeholders who also have their own definitions and criteria of success and and where the business needs to go. And you can make mistakes if you if you jump into bed with the wrong investor as well. Luckily, we haven't. You know, we've had great partners. Vinny, Lee, are you listening? <laughs> yeah, just in sure. case. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but we have been fortunate. I mean, you know, we've had really great partners in the business and we haven't had the kind of relationships that you sometimes hear about where, you know, founders get kicked out of companies and there are all sorts of shenanigans. Sure. In terms of the mindset of many entrepreneurs, you, you kind of hear it. I mean, I, obviously through Heavy Chef, I'm, I'm working a lot with, with young entrepreneurs and it always makes me smile when I, I listen to somebody and they talk about their objective and, and particularly when you try, you ask them to define what a success look like. Yeah. And they'll say, well, in, you know, in five years time, I want to exit. Yeah. And, <laughs> and that exit is like, yes, yeah. Ferrari yeah. time. And, yeah. yeah. You know, and yeah. how do you define what a success successful exit, whether that's yeah. something that even enters your mind. Yeah. You know, can you speak about that process of, of yeah. exiting and whether that is success in yeah. itself? Yeah. It's one that you do kind of get encouraged to think about a lot. And, and I think, you know, VCs also ask you a lot of the time. Investors ask you, like, what is, you know, what is your exit scenario look like? And it, it goes back again to, to what is success. I think what I would call like a shallower view of exit, where it's the Ferrari or the, the monetary value, Entrepreneurs who've built something of value to the space that they operate in will never have that sort of answer, right? Like I think to build something great, a Ferrari or, you know, a check isn't going to be the thing that's going to motivate you to get there. The journey is incredibly difficult. It is daily highs and lows. And, you know, the notion of something material isn't enough to sustain you. And so for us, when we think about 
you know, an exit or where we want to get to or, you know, what the end stage is. It's about, firstly, the vision of what Sweep South becomes. I would really have to be compelled to leave our business before it got to the point where it had become exactly what we'd intended to do, which is this international home management platform that is making people's lives happier through the use of technology and giving them time back. The reality, though, is that people do exit for a whole lot of different reasons. And I think, you know, there got to be two reasons. The one is, again, that you reach that stage and that, you know, the business is valuable and it presents you with a, a good opportunity. I think the other is that, you know, realistically, people get to a point where the market's not big enough, you know, where things didn't pan out the way that you necessarily thought they would. And if you get presented with an opportunity that looks attractive and the market in front of you doesn't look that attractive anymore, then yeah, maybe exiting does seem like a a good alternative. In which case, obviously, the company can benefit from that acquisition. So it's Absolutely. actually better for everybody involved, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's a way for whatever you've you've built to kind of live on. You know, I think I remember seeing that Mark Zuckerberg had turned down, I think it was from Yahoo, and uh, an offer for, I don't know, whatever it was for yeah, his yeah. business um, very early. Yeah. Um, and the reason he turned it down, the reason he didn't take that offer was because he could see what the business was going to become. And the road to it becoming that was still very clear. You know, he could see it materializing. If that wasn't the case, if there was a huge competitor, if there was something, you know, really scary happening in the market, I have no doubt that he would have taken that offer. Didn't you say something like, it's very rare that you get one idea that is so good. Yeah, well, he said, <laughs> well, you, can... um, you know, Ben Horowitz asked him what he would do if he sold Facebook for that amount. Like if you got three billion and he said, I'd build another Facebook. So yeah. why would I exit? Yeah. Which I think was great. So it, it really is aligned to, how, to the vision. What you're It speaks to, to how do. invested he is in that vision Absolutely. as well. And it yeah. speaks to him and his personality, yeah. which is great. And I think with regards to the success that you've achieved and the success that you're continuing to achieve, even and also obviously the rocky bits and the yeah. bumps and whatnot, there must be uh, some salient lessons that you've learned along the way. And maybe can you speak a, a little bit about that so the rest of us can avoid them? <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, some of the real kind of shining lights of things that you think, wow, you know, those yeah. are things that I wish I hadn't done, or, yeah. or some of those things I wish I had done. Yeah, I think one of the biggest things that I've learned and I'm still learning is that you don't need to go at it alone. You know, when you start a business, you do it as an individual or as a pair of people or three people. And sometimes you you get into the notion that the whole journey needs to be one or two or three of you trying to fight all of your battles. And you forget that there are people who've done this. There are people who have experienced everything that you've experienced before and can give you really good advice and support. And so I didn't get a mentor. I still don't have, you know, one mentor. And for a lot of our journey, didn't talk when I had issues um, and ask people for help. And now I've broadened my network and we've got a lot of friends who are in the space. And, um, you know, the Yoko guys are good friends of ours. Um, and, you know, we talk to them often about the challenges that we're facing. Um, some of our investors are, are also kind of mentors. I use our board a lot for feedback. One of the biggest things is not to go through your struggles by yourself. It's not only damaging for your business, but can also be incredibly personally damaging. When you've got a team of 5, 10, 20, 50 people who are relying on you and your business is going through a trough, it's really stressful to think that, you know, you might be letting those people down. 
Sure. And they're all looking at you, right? You're the person. I remember. The answers, to have the answers, yeah. There, there yeah. was an amazing story about Madiba on a plane once when he was surrounded by a bunch of his trusted cohorts and he was reading a newspaper and the plane started really getting buffeted by like a proper storm. And everybody was freaking out. Yeah. And he just stood there with his newspaper, calm as he like. Obviously, the plane didn't crash. And, it, yeah. and I think it might have been Ahmed Katrado who asked him, how did you remain so calm? And he said, well, because everyone was watching me to see yeah. to see what I would do. And I knew that I had to remain calm in the yeah. face of all this chaos. Yeah, you know? it's so true. And you've got to kind of keep a lot of that angst and the fear and, even and, if and you're anxiety, terrified, right? even if you're terrified, but you can share it with someone who's external sure. outside the business. So it's important to have those people that yeah. you can, you can speak to. Absolutely. Yeah. And then I think also who you start your business with a big cause of businesses going down is, is the wrong sorts of partners. So how's that going for you? <laughs> you can't Fortunately, let this one so, so, so look, I mean, we're still married. Uh, Sweep <laughs> South is still doing well. I've just had a baby. So obviously things, <laughs> so things are, things are looking okay. At home, Good. Yeah. And I think it's because we didn't start a business going, I want to get into a business with my husband just for the sake of it. I think we both had the same vision about what it is that we wanted to build ultimately, the sort of legacy we wanted to have. And we had the skill sets to match that vision. Uh, jointly. And so that's worked out. And I think, you know, having someone who you can partner with who compliments you, but I think even more importantly, who you trust implicitly, you've got to trust this person with your life because ultimately they are carrying out your, your life's vision with you. And then I think probably the third thing would be around the notion of success. We've been very close to burnout a lot of times and, you know, and have kind of been chugging ahead, trying to like go against the grain and, and, and it felt like we're kind of fighting. And I think we got to a point where firstly, we sought outside help and got in a coach and redefined what our ideas of success were. And we looked at success as two distinct things. There's personal success which is what do I as an individual want to achieve for my life? But what do I, more importantly, when I'm achieving that, am I happy with the way that I'm conducting myself? And it, the way that I'm conducting myself, does it align my emotions, how I feel about myself, my day-to-day -day, with what I feel my purpose is? If you're able to do that, whether your business works or not, doesn't matter. You know, every day I've done what I feel is taking myself closer to what I feel my purpose is. If the business didn't work out, that's okay. So, you know, we had to decouple that from the idea of business success, which is the business I'm building and how my customers feel about it, how my employees feel about it, how our investors feel about it, uh, which is very important, but which shouldn't be closely linked to your personal sense of self. Sure. So I suppose success is, is uh, there's multiple definitions of Absolutely. it, which I think is a, a massively valuable lesson to, to take on board. Yeah, yeah. 100%. I think, you know, something that it took us a while to learn, but, you know, having your own personal internal as opposed to external definition of success as well. And uh, have there been any real kind of challenges that have just frustrated you throughout this journey that come to mind? Well, I mean, I think funding is always difficult and all entrepreneurs, you know, talk about it. I think it's difficult because if you've decided that's the route that you want to go down, it becomes critical, mission critical to your business survival, but also something that always takes longer than you think it'll take. And in the early stages, going about it is about selling yourself, selling your company, 
company and doing it in a way that is convincing, even when you're not necessarily convinced that, you know, that what you're selling is true. So that's been difficult. And then there have been challenges with, with the business itself. And every stage, I think, brings different challenges. So in the early stages, it was the challenge of, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know, you know, I didn't yeah. know like, you know, what, a, how to build a financial model, like the very basics. Registering a company was frustrating. Opening up a bank account was frustrating. Trying to get feedback from other entrepreneurs. Is this normal? Is it normal that this stuff has taken so long? Is it normal that we only have two customers in our first month? You know, it was scary sometimes not knowing those things. Did you get a sense of imposter syndrome? Like flip this, I shouldn't be doing this. Everyone do. else knows more. I still do more. all the time. You sure. know, I still do all the time. I, when, when we get asked to speak, I, you know, I still think like, you know, we haven't quote unquote made it. Like, you know, why am I being asked to be this fundy on this topic when I've only run a business for four and a half years? So yeah, you, you know, you have it all the time. But I think comfortingly, I think everyone, everyone does. I remember uh, listening to an interview that Oprah had given. um, I think, I I think it was with David uh, Rubenstein, who's also a billionaire and, you know, does these interviews with captains of industry. And he was speaking to Oprah and he asked her what some of the things are that she'd learned from her journey. And she said, Every single person she'd interviewed, including celebrities, everyone after the interview asked her if they'd done a good job. How did I do? Every, how did I do? Yeah. How did that go? And, yeah. and she said it came from people wanting to add value. Um, and so I think that it's not, you know, imposter syndrome. We all have some element of that. We want to feel like, you know, what we're doing is useful. Um, is valuable. We want to feel sure. like other people value what we do. Sure, which makes that definition of success so vitally important uh, in terms of internalizing that it's yeah. not just about the balance sheet. As, ma- as important as that is, but there's also the success is defined as where am I on my journey and yeah. and how – you know, what direction am I walking towards? Am I still walking in the direction that I, I need to walk in in order to sh- achieve my personal success? Absolutely. So whilst you haven't yet bought the Ferrari, or at least I hope you haven't. No, I you, absolutely with the, haven't. I only you've re- just had a baba. Uh, yeah, I only recently <laughs> moved out of my parents' house. And yeah, so, so I'm very, very far away from the Ferrari. Well, it looks like the Ferrari is a far distant memory <laughs> worked with the burgeoning family. Yes, so that's true. Yeah. Aisha, thank you so much for the wisdom and, and and uh, the insights that you've provided us today. And you are definitively a success in our eyes. And long may it continue in terms of the next phases of of this amazing journey, this innovative journey that, that you're on. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Fred. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Healthy Business Show. If you love this podcast, do let us know via social media. Tag at discovery underscore essay. Use the hashtag DSY Healthy Business and please do rate us on your favorite podcast platform. Whether it's Apple, Spotify, or wherever you find your shows, you can also find more episodes on the Discovery website at discovery.co.za forward slash corporate forward slash podcasts.